Welcome to Design Talk. In the next few episodes, we'll be looking at the design ecosystem for new products and new ventures, working across the product team interface, understanding how to work with teams from the outside in and the inside out. Uh, hello, my name is Prince Priyank. Uh, hi, my name's Ashlyn. Uh, we are very pleased to have Patrick Stacy with us today. Patrick is Associate Professor of Information Management at Lockbury University and founder of Anguillitis, uh, the emotion analytics company. First, Patrick, can you share a few words about yourself and career to begin? Yeah, sure. Um, I was in industry for about uh, 10 years before I did my PhD. I was working in Singapore doing uh, software development uh, for quasi-government companies, um, e-commerce, content management systems. Uh, then I did a PhD at Bath, which was all about computer games development and managing the uh, the processes and the pipelines involved in producing computer games. And from that, I went into a pretty straightforward academic career, you know, into lecturing and then senior lecturer, um, and just um, following. uh my nose really um from games development staying in sort of information systems uh but branching into you know sort of cognate areas yeah that sounds like a really interesting career um we'd love for you to share some thoughts on the design process for game development yeah um well wow. could give like a lecture on that <laughs> well i think uh, the top of my mind is probably two things two elements firstly the multidisciplinary nature of computer games development um as well as the process itself now on the multidisciplinary side i mean computer games are not designed completely by engineers by people coding um it's an extremely creative process which involves script writers um animators um people that specialize in all sorts and fields of software from uh texturing to um you know mechanics and all sorts of things um so it's a very multidisciplinary um environment very creative uh very dynamic uh, but very fast paced so um it's a it's a big space big competitive area in terms of the process um is very much sort of in the agile realm if you've heard of agile software development so it's about developing in small sub cycles so you don't just sort of follow one linear path but you chop up the game into lots of different levels and chop those levels into lots of different scenes and then you work on each scene um i interviewed before um Toby Gard who developed Tomb Raider um and it was very interesting hearing about how they were shifting from a very sort of siloed traditional kind of process model um to one which was a lot more uh, fluid and agile um and he was saying that uh, Tomb Raider now they've started to develop in slices so you do a little, you do a bit of the art you do some of the coding you do some of the script and so on you do you know slices of the game not even a level you know you're like a slice of the level and then you just sort of you know roll out from that so games development is not like um traditional software development which is a little bit more linear you might start with oh yeah let's get some user requirements and then let's just follow those and deliver on those right it's 
straightforward. I get your requirements, I deliver the product. In games, it's completely different. You know, you, you're you're producing entertainment, right? It's like making a movie or um, I don't know, a pop song or something. You you got to think not in terms of software quality, but in terms of entertainment quality. You know, um, and get the right people together. You know, creative creatives and engineers to produce the game. Uh, that's great insight from you, actually. Uh, my next question would be: Is creativity something we can teach? Uh, can we manage or control it? Well, a lot of um, people think uh, that it can be. Um, you know, it, it it's, <laughs> it's it's a very big question to ask. If you look at things like Osborne's problem-solving diamond, or if you look at the Design Council in the UK, which has this double diamond, um, what they try to teach is you start off brainstorming, so it's it's about being very chaotic and sporadic with ideas, switching off the edit function in your brain and going like this to the bottom of the diamond, which is like this, sort of just going out and out and out. How many diverse ideas can we produce? But there comes a point when you'll just say, okay, that's enough of that. We've subjectively, you have, there is no measure for it, but you just have to subjectively say, look, um, I think that's enough, guys. We've sort of gone into a completely different, unrelated area now let's just stop there and then you try and complete the top of the diamond so you come back and try and coalesce the ideas synthesize all the ideas um in into a game or whatever it is so you know there are these sorts of frameworks which are supposed to help teach creativity yes um ultimately it's a very relative concept you know what do you mean by you know being creative to one person is not to another. So where do you set the bar for it? You know. So um, yeah, I think to a degree, you can definitely teach frameworks for creativity. Um, you know, it's it's a social thing as well as a psychological thing. I mean, some people need to be nudged quite a lot in order to be creative. You know, they're too uh, too cautious and too conservative. Being creative is about being the opposite. You can't be conservative. To be creative, you've got to really, you know, think in a wild way. So um, there are there are ways of doing that in film and games. There's something called body storming, where people just randomly kind of run around in a room with motion caption, motion uh, mocap stuff attached, and see what movements are produced. So yeah, there are techniques, frameworks, tools for encouraging uh, creativity. But at the end of the day. The proof of that creativity is going to be in the success of the, the product. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we'd love to know what was the spark that prompted you to start uh, Anquilitus? Um, well, sitting in front of the email day to day, looking at a list um, of emails, confronted with like 150 emails a day, all which uh, everyone's trying to shout and say, oh, this is very important, this is very important. And and then I was doing um, research with my PhD on email stress, and it became abundantly clear that people are so stressed out with email. It's unbelievable. You know, we all get so many emails every day, and it's like, oh, God, look at that. 100 emails, 50 emails, however many it is. And um, it, it can overwhelm people. So um, I thought... How, how can we actually sort of, you know, not not completely obliterate stress, but how can we reduce the stress? And so Anquilitus was born um, with that um, 
in mind so that when you open up your email box, it doesn't confront you so badly and it, it tags all the emails with the traffic light system. So, you know, green for positive emails, red for negative emails using sentiment an analytics and then orange for neutral emails. So at least if I opened up my inbox and I saw that there aren't any reds, it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, people are pretty chilled out today. That's And within a few seconds, I feel relaxed. I don't have to like, oh, right, what's this? What's this? What's... And also, you know, there's just so little innovation around email. It's unbelievable. I mean, after all these years of email systems, whenever we go to email, it's just like a list. So we're also looking to try and innovate the way that we interact with email and um, create a more of a visualization, you know, a visual inbox, if you like. So that's a couple of years down the road. But um, yeah, it's just kind of frustration generally out of email. <laughs> Uh, that is interesting, actually. So my next question would be on design process. So question is, do you involve users or client in the design process? Very good question. Very timely question as well. Um, well, initially, yes, but only for a short period of time. Then you go, you know, depending on the system that you've got to develop, it could take months, could take years. Um, so you'll find that when you're going through the alpha stage, of productization, product development and innovation, you're, you're not interfacing with users because you need to just get your head down and get, um, you know, a lean idea out, okay? But now that uh, we're in the beta testing phase, actually, we're also onboarding beta testers as customer developers. So we are now bringing them in a lot more. So this feature is it, you know, A, is it useful? B how could it be better? Uh, what else do you need? Um, how would you do it? And so on, and have you know meaningful conversations with users again. So yeah, they come in at the beginning, then you ignore them because you've got to get the product out, um, and then you interface with them again during beta. Now there is a, a sound business reason for doing that as well, not just to create a better product, but also to hopefully keep them on board, and then they will become actual customers, you know, paying customers in the future. So. Um, get them involved is, is a meaningful way to really um you know engage with them and um hopefully get some money out of them later <laughs> um so what is your approach to delivering the software um i know you mentioned meaningful a few times there would that be your approach or um and then taking that into consideration how has it changed over time um so just want to clarify what you mean by delivery um, I was kind of thinking maybe the design life cycle and then the process. So um, in the early days, it was about creating one very crude um, and complicated dashboard, um, which when I look back at it now, it's just hilarious. But it, it, it's hilarious to look at, but it had all of the you know, necessary features that you would want. Then after that, it's sort of like um, thinking, right, okay, how can we actually um, unpack this and go to another level of prototyping? So again, um, there was very little sort of user management around it. It was very much on the core features. It's just ingest the email, um, produce several dashboards, and make it look a little bit better. So that was the next iteration. 
Um, then the, the next one was sort of thinking, right, okay, now let's really improve the user interface because at the moment it just looks awful, you know. So the user interface was next. We got the engineering done and everything is working, but now let's do the user interface. So, um, yeah, I did the user interface um, and then also the user management. And by user management, what I mean is that you got to register for the app. You've got to then, you know, they got to log in. They've got to do their multi-factor authentication, uh, that kind of thing. Okay, so there's the user management. So you keep just sort of, it's, it's, it's a bit like that spiral model of development by uh, Barry Baim. Uh, from this 1988 paper, you, you kind of spiral out. You start off with a, essentially a very bad-looking um, prototype, and then you just spiral out from there and keep prototyping, keep prototyping until you get to the alpha internal testing phase and now into the, the beta testing. And, um, you know, also partly, yes, you can manage the process, but also there is a gut instinct side to it because you will just realize and you reach a saturation point. Like, uh, I literally cannot think of anything else to put in here. I can't think of any other security features behind, uh, you know, on the server side. I've done everything that I can, basically. And when you have that feeling that you've done everything you can, you know that it's time to go, you know, into a more public realm and um, engage a lot more deeply with the, with the beta testers and customers. I have one interesting question for you. If you were starting a new venture and you had a choice between self-funding or bringing in investors, what would you choose in this? The self-funding, it, it depends again on, you know, it's like the iron triangle, isn't it? You know, time, cost, quality. If you've got time, fund it yourself. If you're in a hurry, don't fund it yourself. Okay. Um, I wasn't in a hurry, so I took a couple of years you know, in my weekends and holidays, evenings and so on, you know, to develop this. Um, but if you think that there's something that is very time sensitive, need to get it to market and all of that, which a lot of people do, I mean, but you have to be very careful because some entrepreneurs enter into this panic mindset. It's like, oh, right, I've really got to get this done. Oh, if I don't get this done in six months, I'm dead, you know, it, which is, it's not really a healthy way to, you know, come up with an innovation. You really... Psychologically, you've got to stay calm. So if time is not an issue, I would always self-fund. But if time isn't an issue, you need resources, you need, or again, if you don't have the skill set and you need people to come in, sure, you need to, you know, go into a funding uh, setting, you know. And, uh, but that, that comes with a lot of expectations and a lot of other sorts of costs. Yeah, so I suppose uh, building on the idea that, you know, resources are needed to start a new venture, um, I'd love to know what your opinion is on university-based innovation hubs. I suppose, in your experience, do they live up to the hype? Mm. Yeah, well, this is kind of what I was uh, hinting at because I was very, very um, cautious about the whole thing. You know, um, I didn't really go to the university for a while. And exactly what you said, I thought it might be just, just pure hype. Um, and it, it can become a little bit of a cliche sometimes, you know, um, going into startup, doing VC stuff and all of that. To me, it just sounded a bit unnecessary, like an overkill. But actually, when I had a good prototype and I went to the university, 
they had a very sensible um, plan. And they, so I went on to a program called the Wayfinder program, which is actually pre-startup. And that was fantastic because you were able to hear from very experienced people. They brought in very experienced speakers on all different aspects, you know, whether it's pricing, how do you price your product, your software, um, to, you know, how you engage with customers, how you um, do marketing, what accountant should you have? You know, there are lots of practical elements to it. So I like that. I like it when it's practical and it's definitely going to help me. But if, if it's just to sort of like, um, you know, sort of drum you up into a sort of a hysterical state, like, oh, yeah, you're going to be so big and you make millions and all that, I, I, that kind of turns me off, all, all of that. I'm more interested in sort of the practicalities. So from my experience with Loughborough, yeah, actually, it was very useful. I was pleasantly surprised. Um, initially, I was told by the IP development people that I didn't really need the university because I developed it all on my own, using my own resources. But actually, now, as it turns out, I'm talking to the commercialization people, and um, we're going to look at um, uh, going into a partnership because there's, there's actually massive benefits of doing that in terms of uh, the market they help you enormously with uh, market development marketing even people to do like operations so the operations function the day-to-day running of company uh, not to mention access to uh, funds you know for all sorts of things whether it's an interface thing or whether it's a marketing thing so um from my experience i understand People might be cautious and that it's just all hype, but actually my substantial experience is, is positive. So I would at least encourage you to to check it out and to, you know, if it's not for you, then fine, you know, just walk away. But at least you've got something to walk away from. I have one question for you, actually. So uh, you're discussing about the design process. Uh, we hear and we read quite a lot about participatory design. So I want to know, how participatory design influences the design process overall and what's your take on that yeah it's just very very interesting i mean i've <laughs> i've researched this and published this and within games development um, it's extremely participatory my experience within the ankylitis the emotion analytics stuff is different um, because reason being for ankylitis i wanted full 100% ip to myself so I developed it myself. I didn't want to participate because I wasn't sh- I wasn't actually 100% sure the company would go, would, would get going. But I thought, I don't really want to work with a team and then we share the IP of this. I, something, I don't know, I, I, I'm not quite sure why. I guess maybe I was being greedy. <laughs> I just wanted the IP for myself um, in this case. But if you're, um, you know, it depends on the context. If you're sort of working with, uh, say, government agencies, doing consultancy, consulting design and stuff, I don't think you have much choice. It has to be participatory. And I think probably nine times out of ten, it will be participatory. Um, There again, you know, people do develop games on their own as well, um, you know, and come out with great stuff. So um, it depends on several things. It depends on the business context. It depends on you. What do you like? Do you actually like um, working in a team? Um, or do you prefer to sort of develop on your own? Um, 
yeah, so it, it, it depends on the context and it depends on you. Um, do you have any last thoughts or advice that you'd like to share before we finish? I think given the context of where we are, you know, you're at university, I'm at university. I think I would definitely, I think before you talk to anybody in the incubator or, you know, whatever kind of, whatever you call it there, make sure you've got some kind of prototype or at least some sort of design. I do see it quite a lot. Somebody will go in and sort of say, oh, I've got this idea. It's going to be massive. Um, and they'll talk for two minutes. Sounds good. And say, okay, so have you got a prototype? Say, no. Okay. So, and then you, you start to sort of trip up. So if, if you can at least go down, you know, and do some sort of substantial design even, you know, whether it's paper prototyping, or whether it's with Python, I code in Python, um, or whether it's, you know, a series of sketches or something, or maybe a business model canvas, you know, like Osterwalder's business model canvas. Try try to take something substantial into that first meeting, because if you go in just with an idea, um, they will just ask you to go away and keep thinking. So, yeah, by all means, don't be discouraged. You've got to be in this for the long haul it's taken me about three years to get to this you know and you really have to have the passion if you don't have the passion for it you, you won't like spending your weekends or your holidays uh working on it you know so you, you it is a business yeah but you've got to take pleasure from it so um yeah that's that's my advice <laughs> uh, well we'll wrap up there uh thanks a lot Patrick talk for talking with us and sharing your thoughts today. So thank thanks a lot. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Thank you for listening and sharing this episode. The music is dismantled by Ben Pronti and used with his permission. <laughs>